Hello Internet and hello audience. Welcome to Handmade Seattle 2022. This is one of those conference podcasts that only happen once a year and everybody's you know waiting eagerly for it. <laughs> so this is an interesting discussion because it's around what I think has been the zeitgeist in the Hammett community, at least one of the one of the big parts of the zeitgeist, which is the topic around memory management, memory safety, and there's many reasons for why this has become a hot topic. Part of it has to do with up and coming languages, and something like the the Rust community has grown a lot, and so has the Zig community, and those two seem to have factions that like to battle it out <laughs> when it comes to the topic of our memory safety, and just becomes really intense on places like Twitter and Hacker News and just social media in general. It's crazy, right? Those are not the only languages, obviously. There's other languages, other strategies, other people building software and thinking about what it means to build software in a quality way, in a safe way, whatever that means, right? So they all have their own ideas for it. But it's a contentious topic. It's just really contentious. And I think one of our duties here at this conference is to teach how we can have an interesting conversation, a challenging conversation, but without letting it go off the rails. And I think that's quite possible, and I hope we can prove it <laughs> through a lovely conversation that is going to be happening right now with our moderator, Alan Webster, who is a well-known figure in the handmade community. Alan is the creator of Forcoder a handmade project which is the official text editor used in Handmade Hero. And before it was open source this year in, in 2022, I believe Forcoder was regularly in the top three most downloaded tools, uh, places like H.I.O., for example. One of the many reasons Alan is well-known and well-respected in my view is his ability to ask the right questions to clarify misunderstandings, misunderstandings between parties. So the three guests that Alan is moderating, they each represent a, a different part of the memory safety spectrum. For example, we have Evan Ovaria, that's one guest, the creator of the Veil programming language. Evan, oh, that's V-A-L-E, Veil. It's an increasingly popular memory safe language which diverges from Rust in terms of which strategies to focus on, which is interesting. So Evan, will be representing memory safety, so to speak. Another guest is Ryan Flurry. Ryan is one of the most competent C programmers that I personally know. He will be promoting the merits of unsafe, of unsafety, if you will. And kind of in the middle of all this, we have John Austin. John is the founder of Pontoco. I love saying that, Pontoco, which is a successful game studio that released uh, The Last Clockwinder. And The Last Clockwinder is a VR puzzle game that my favorite VR YouTuber calls it the maybe the best VR puzzle game out there. I say John is more in the middle because he's been following Rust since 2013 and values what Rust provides, but at the same time, he's a businessman that needs to ship games on tight deadlines and has to be pragmatic about things. So that's why he's more neutral in this discussion. Okay, so this is the last you'll hear from me for this podcast. We leave it to our moderator, and we humbly welcome you to the first ever Memory Safety Podcast. Alan, take it away. All right, thanks, Abner. What I want to try to do is first, let's get an introduction so everyone knows who, who we're talking to, and then we'll take it from there to start laying out this topic and, and getting into interesting stuff. So for introductions, could you give us your name, uh, what you work on day to day, and what, what your particular interest is in the topic of the podcast? So uh, how about uh, Evan, will you go first? 
Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Evan Ovadia. I'm the creator of the Veil programming language. I uh, work on games, servers, apps, languages, pretty much you name it. Yeah, I spent the better part of a decade working on uh, Google My Maps, then Google Earth, then Google Chat while I was there. Um, and I do some hobbyist game development every year for the seven-day roguelike challenge, best time of the year. Nowadays, I spend most of my time working on Veil. That's, that's it for me. All right. And awesome. John? Hi, uh, my name is John Austin. Uh, so I'm the founder and studio runner for Pontoco, which is a game studio. We've released a game called The Last Clockwinder recently, and now we're working on a new title. I'm also, <laughs> you know, lead engineer. We're a very small company, and so we wear a lot of hats. But I've been making games, gosh, for a long time now. Maybe like almost ni like 19 years now, I think actually. And like C Sharp, and I started with Flash. Anyway, I won't go too deep into it, but my interest here is kind of on the pragmatics of programming languages because I'm, I'm always interested in new programming languages and learning how to make games better. So it's very focused. Like I want to make games better and faster, not just performance, but also like how can we just, you know, make them faster because they take so long to make. So that's kind of the angle I'm coming from with it. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, finally, Ryan. Hello, uh, I'm Ryan Fleury. Day-to-day -day work, I work on uh, the debugger project over at now Epic Games. I've been building games my whole life. Uh, I started when I was about six years old, like with QBasic, and eventually I kind of moved more towards the engines and then eventually tools space. So I've thought a lot about programming tools as well. And I guess for this discussion, I'm mostly interested in, uh, I think everyone, like, I don't know why it's a contentious topic, actually. Like, I think people have a lot of value to add from all angles. And I think everyone has their own sort of set of blind spots. And I'm, I mean, I, I've learned a lot just programming in, I guess, what you would call memory unsafe languages, just trying to iterate on my techniques in that world. So I want to present my position and then see what I can learn from everyone else. So that's, that's me. Awesome. Thanks. I'll, I'll just intro myself real quick too. Uh, I'm Alan Webster. Uh, my particular interest in this is a bit of a meta interest. I'm really interested in seeing programmers get better at at having productive conversations when they when there's a contentious topic. And so I'm also interested in programming getting better, which is like specifically what this is about, really. But the meta thing of getting better by having better conversations is what made me excited to be a moderator for this topic. So. That's, that's who our cast is today. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do is just sort of lay out what the basics of this topic are. So, uh, you know, just real quick, we don't need to spend a lot of time on defining things that our audience are probably already familiar with, but I want to kind of lay things out so we're all on the same page and our audience uh, knows what definitions we're operating with. So for starters, can someone offer a definition for memory management? What does that mean? I have notes. Oh. I, can, I can take yeah. a crack at <laughs> sure. it. So um, I guess I would start by just like uh, framing it within the sort of the discussion or framing the discussion around the idea that computers transform data, they take input data, produce output data, and data is stored in memory and memory is fixed. Um, and so because memory is fixed, uh, you like many applications, for example, applications that you expect users to run for a very long time, like a video game or a graphical application, those programs need to reuse memory. So they they need to make certain resources that they've sort of uh, allocated or prepared uh, available for subsequent allocations when they're no longer necessary. Um, so memory management, I would define as sort of the entire problem space of organizing how exactly you're going to reuse memory when you consider things to be available for 
for reuse and, and how you group things and arrange things. That's, that's how I would define it. Yeah. Interesting. Does that, does that definition make sense to everyone else? Does anyone want to sort of pick it at it or get some things slightly different? That lines up pretty perfectly with my understanding too. I, I would throw on top. So, so that, that definition to me, feels like it's coming from the side of how does the data look like, you know, where is it? And like, what am I doing with it? I would, I would also throw this, there's an element of memory management that is coming at it more from the application level, which is more like, how am I as an application developer having to worry about it? Like for instance, you still deal with memory management when you are working in Python or Java or something like that. You don't have, to, you don't think at all about where is it going? Like, you know, the layouts or anything, but you do have to think about, oh, did I make a reference cycle or, you know, what is my heap size or how does the garbage collector functioning? There's kind of another higher layer, layer there when you're sort of working in some of these uh, more managed languages, I think, too. But I, I'd still call that memory management to some yeah. degree. Uh, just, I'm going to ask just a quick clarifying question to make sure I followed that part. So, so you're saying what Ryan gave is sort of at the lowest level what memory management is. But when you're dealing with a specific language, you have memory management takes on an additional meaning based on what, like if that language, for instance, has a garbage collector, then memory management in that language is about understanding and dealing with that garbage collector. Is that, am I understanding what you were saying? Correctly? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think it's like, to me, I define it as, like, well, there's memory management. And then there's all of the things that memory management ends up like percolating down into that maybe are they man memory management or not, but you know, yeah. they still okay. sort of impact the way you day-to-day -day use the language, you know? Awesome. Okay, so another like core topic here is what is memory safety? Evan, do you want to give a definition to that since you didn't give our fir the first two big thoughts there? Yeah, um, I'd say memory safety is is how we can avoid undefined behavior uh, in our programs. Now, undefined behavior is a uh, is a very nebulous concept, and it's often kind of linked to the particular language in question. Um, but undefined behavior is uh, very spooky things that make it so you can't predict what your program is about to do. And uh, it can make very you know, hard to debug problems. Like for example, if, if you mix up you know, dereferencing some uh, memory that is no longer used for what you think it's used for, you could suddenly overwrite the hit points of this particular spaceship over here with the fuel of that missile over there. Or you could, I don't know, accidentally <laughs> set the uh, the number of dollars in this person's account to, you know, two billion five hundred and seven, which is actually the address of something else, and that is all pretty much summed or uh, captured by the concept of undefined behavior, and uh, it can be particularly insidious when attackers can exploit that to get into your system. So memory safety is is basically how we can prevent that kind of problem in our code. Okay, I'll ask him, does everyone uh, understand that definition? Yeah, I, I, I would probably narrow down the undefined behavior part more so to memory bugs since it's about memory management because undefined behavior pops up, you know, depending on the language spec, it could be totally unrelated to uh, memory bugs. So I think about it more in terms of, you know, use after free, double freeze, these kinds of errors that can easily arise if you're like, I mean, if you imagine like the C malloc and free style thing, you, you can run into... I mean, exactly what you describe. I, I just, pro I wouldn't, I wasn't thinking of undefined behavior and I just figured I'd say uh, a more precise 
thing for me, at least in my head. So yeah, to build on that, uh, the other kinds of undefined behavior that we might trigger are things like uh, overflowing integers, right? Like like you right, say, right, if we right. overflow an integer, we can trigger undefined behavior, um, and that mm -hmm. can sometimes lead to some very odd things in our programs. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if I if I could summarize and if I summarize and you guys don't like my summary, it's your job to to make it better. But if I could summarize, memory safety. Is this right? It's like ways of trying to address the bugs that come out of undefined behavior and, and other kinds of misuse of memory. And maybe double free and use after free are actually just examples of undefined behavior arising specifically from memory. And so we're talking about the memory related undefined behaviors or something like that. One, one thing that comes to mind when you were mentioning that is with bugs is that I, I generally often see it associated very heavily with security. So memory say like it's not a to total definition but like very oftentimes memory safety is sort of defined by whether or not a like program could potentially read data that it doesn't have access to like one of the benefits of having memory safety is that you don't have to worry about that um usually um, mm -hmm. but that's sort of i think it's oftentimes a goal and that's like when you talk about like safety the word safety to me is very to me is very associated with security it's like oh the safety of the data like i'm keeping my data safe from like potential attackers gotcha yeah and there's uh there's two more angles to memory safety that i like to to think about the first one is is for example a buffer no uh when you uh access uh an array out of bounds uh you might you know read or write to some random memory way over there Bounds checks is another way to help with memory safety. That's usually not considered in most languages. Like we don't really consider the privacy aspect. Like we often think about memory safety in terms of security risks. Like someone might, you know, break into our system and start messing with our program data. But the other aspect is privacy. You know, if we accidentally expose a user's data to someone else. Uh, and this can happen you know, via these undefined behavior reads. Um, but it can also happen if we access the, for example, wrong section of memory. Like even if it's not classically defined as memory safety, even though it's not triggering undefined behavior, it's still something that is addressed by a lot of memory safety strategies. And so it's kind of, you know, inextricably linked to the rest of this memory safety talk, uh, in my opinion. Gotcha. Okay, that was a super thorough covering of the basic stuff. I think before we get into talking about specific features of languages or specific other strategies that give us memory safety or try to give us memory safety, I think it'd be nice to calibrate this with a question about how important this is. How important is this to each? And this might be more of a personal thing where you're saying to me, this is like the most important thing where you're like, this is only important if it's not more important to do X, Y, or Z. Like, how do we calibrate why, like how, like you already kind of started talking about this with attackers and security, these are the reasons why it might be important, but how important are we talking about? Yeah, so um, it can be extremely important or kind of important or not important at all, depending on the domain you're in. Uh, so for example, if you are writing the front end server for you know Google Earth or Google My Maps, then you don't want people to take over that server because if they take over the server, they can read everyone else's data that's going through that server. That would be bad. However, if you're dealing with something like client side of Google Earth or maybe, you know, a single player roguelike game, then it's not as important because, you know, no one's going to attack you because, you know, like for the roguelike game, you're not even connected to the internet. Or for the case of Google Earth, you're not, uh, you're only connected to a single trusted server. And on top of that, you know, some applications are sandboxed, so they don't even have access to 
uh, super critical information. In those cases, memory safety might not be so important. But in cases where you're doing like you know a high frequency trading server, where you're handling millions of dollars or you're handling a lot of user data, memory safety can be incredibly important because if something goes wrong, the results could be catastrophic. But in other cases, maybe not so catastrophic. I think my perspective here differs a little bit in that I think memory safety is it's often used as a proxy for other forms of safety, and mostly because I think if you're dealing with like a high frequency trading server or something like that, there are there's an entire space of possibilities that your software can sort of operate within, and memory safety does outline some subset of those. But I think that when you're working in a space like that, you have to be very well equipped to deal with all possibilities within the space, not just those related to uh, common uh, like memory bugs, for example. I mean, but of course, I, I obviously agree that like you should have a very strong technique and very rigorous technique in avoiding those kinds of bugs. But I think my perspective is more that it's more often used as a proxy. And I think for me, I like to sort of drill down to like, here's the problem, here are the parameters, and here's the space that forms, and here are the possibilities. Yeah, It's probably just like a terminology difference maybe, but I, I figured I'd add my two cents there. I was going to ask, what do you... What do you mean by proxy? I don't quite get the sense of proxy. Like, as in, it, we talk about memory safety, but what we really mean is like bug safety or like just general correctness. Right. So I think that in some cases, and I'd be, I'd be curious to hear both of your experiences with this, but in some cases, it seems like avoiding memory bugs with like, for example, compile time memory safety checks or something often doesn't eliminate the bugs, but shifts them to a different space and makes them, you may avoid undefined behavior, your program may, may not crash, but you may still have a logical problem with how you're dealing with data. And I think like, I, I think my main thought about it all is that you c there's no getting around the fact that everyone has to tackle their problems to the fullest extent. Even if you're relying on, for example, like, you know, borrow checker or something like that when tackling a difficult and very, a problem for which your solution must be very secure. When you're dealing in that space, I think you, you, you might choose to rely on some of those features for sure. But I think like you can't tr necessarily trust it. Like you have to always bake it down to the final problem of like, here are the possibilities. And I guess that's kind of what I mean by proxies. Like it's, it's, solving some class of problems, but those problems aren't necessarily mapping to the full set of very serious critical flaws in your final problem space. Now, obviously it's like nothing solves everything. Uh, and I guess that that's, but that's the main relationship that I've tried to uh, express there. Yeah. I think I see what you mean. It's like the sort of the sense of you can solve your memory problems, but that doesn't mean you will solve your actual bugs. Like Yeah, and yeah. even security problems and and you know right. data leakage problems and attack and like security exploits and everything. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. very hard to to just determine when that shifting happens because I totally agree. And I often right. like think of that idea of yeah, like am I just shifting this bug somewhere else? Or like it's but it's it's a hard thing to decide whether or not that's actually happening or whether or not like oh and they, though these are actually bugs or whether they're indicative of a bug somewhere else. I can give mm -hmm. my perspective on when I value memory safety. Um, I mean, I think from my point of view, like <laughs> I think I mentioned in the beginning, but I am here to do whatever I can to make my games faster and make them better and easier to make. And so, memory safety is you know it's a means to an end in that sense. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about just now when it comes to memory safety is how easy it is to handle bugs. Memory safety bugs often can be very hard to track down. Like if you're lucky, they turn into a seg fault. And if you're unlucky, they start writing incorrect but entirely valid data into another structure. And then it's like, oh, boy, how do you, how do you unravel that? 
Uh, and so for me, a big, big part of my decision space is how can I make my bugs easiest to, to identify and handle at the source? One of the things that I was just thinking about also was that oftentimes a seg fault is really challenging to, to manage because it might be happening on a playtester's computer that I don't even have access to. If I'm lucky, I can talk them into giving me a core dump, but like, you know, they might either not know how to do that or they just might like totally check out after like they might send us a bug report and that's it. That's all we get. Um, and so a lot of the times my like thinking about memory safety, like I'd rather the error potentially be higher up in the stack because maybe we can handle it. Maybe we can, you know, grab a stack trace and send it somewhere before the program dies entirely. Um, and I think that's like an important question of like, what level do you want your errors happening at? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, memory safety generally turns very scary problems into either very less scary problems or slightly less scary problems. Like Java can turn a memory safety problem into a performance problem, uh, which is often better. Um, Rust can turn memory safety problems into sometimes in very subtle ways, uh, wrong index problems or ownership problems. But generally those are better than you know privacy and security problems. Yeah, and I think it depends on the domain, though, because it's like, you know, if it's a single-player game that I'm putting on someone else's computer, that's one thing. But if it's a command-line tool that I'm running directly on my device, and if it's segfaults, it's just like, boom, I can see that right there. You know, that's a very different domain. So I think that we've covered the concept of memory safety and how important it is quite a lot. We do have one more thing that I want to go over, and it's going to be a little bit more technical. So I think if we get too deep, we'll lose the audience. But I'd love to go over a couple of the different ideas of how memory safety can be achieved. So I think the first one, the, like the big one that got thrown out, that's the one we just have to address is borrow checker. What is, what on earth is the borrow checker? If not, I, I, let's talk to a portion of our audience who's just never even done the first step of learning Rust. Yeah. What is the borrow checker? So if you've never used Rust before, the one weird trick <laughs> the one weird thing that rust does is that when you have a reference there is you can have one of two things you can either have a mutable and exclusive reference to something i had like which is to say that i there's only one thing pointing at this object and it's mutable or um i could have any number of shared references that are immutable so i can have one reference that i can you know crank the object do whatever i want with it or I can have a bunch of things looking at the object, but they all have to be immutable and totally read-only. And at any point in the program, you can never violate this, basically. Like, whenever, wherever you view the program, that's always true. And that's actually even true in a lot of unsafe code, too. Like, we can get more into unsafe later. I want to go too deep on that. But that's, like, the, the, the kind of the concrete rule that Rust decides to impose. And essentially what the borrow checker is to me is just whatever system that is built to to check and validate that, that constraint. So originally the borrow checker was done like kind of lexically, like on the source code, just like kind of, it was fairly dumb. And actually it, there were a lot of patterns that were entirely correct and it would, to, it would reject because it was just too simple. And semi-recently as of a couple of years ago, they moved over to a new non-lexical lifetimes approach, which means it's actually looking at code flow and like, you know, doing it at a much finer grain level. And that solved a lot of problems. And now there's this new system called Polonius, which is kind of coming down, which is more like a prologue -y sort of thing that's happening. That's, it's a little, little bit more, still more on the research side of things. But to, to me, I, I say that because the concept of the borrow checker is, in, is not like a static thing. It's kind of like 
a moving target that is always advancing. And we may find languages coming forward in the next five, 10 years that just, you know, use a borrow checker in a totally different way. And I think that'll be really interesting. Would you consider uh, the, the single ownership aspect to be part of the borrow checker, John? Uh, in terms of ownership uh, of the values themselves as opposed to the reference model? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I, I, think, there, I think the ownership, uh, well, the ownership kind of comes from the reference model because I think sort of like they kind of come hand in hand. I haven't actually thought about it this way, though. Yeah, me either. It's a good question. But I, I feel like they're kind of intertwined and that one can't really happen without the other. Um, yeah, because the only way you could have multi-ownership is, well, okay, okay, traditionally, the only way you could have multi-ownership would be with pointers. And so once you start to talk about pointers and Rust, then you get into, the, into that dichotomy of exclusive ownership or, or exclusive referencing or shared immutable referencing. But Yeah, uh, the reason yeah. I bring it up is because uh, I feel like uh, alongside the borrow checker, uh, we often have to think about uh, single ownership. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and single ownership, if anyone's used C++, uh, unique pointer uh, is, is all about single ownership. But uh, we even use single ownership in, in C. Um, like, for example, if you ever have a function that returns a malloced pointer, so a pointer to some dynamically allocated memory, and it says you are responsible for freeing it, that responsibility is kind of like single ownership. And then you can kind of pass that responsibility around conceptually, even in C code. Um, and so something nice that, that Rust does is it tracks this responsibility, this single ownership. And so I, I kind of see those as the the two fundamental pieces of Rust is that it does single ownership very well and it does borrow checking very well. So single ownership tracks who should free the memory, borrow checker tracks who is allowed to access the memory in what way. Yeah, that's gotcha. a good, that's a very good point. I think that, sorry, Alan, we can, we can keep going if you want to, but. Uh... Well, I just had a clarifying question for the, um, for the audience who, who isn't familiar with Rust, which is how much of this has runtime performance implications? Mm -hmm. It's, it, I think the correct answer, like, there's, there's levels of answers here. The, the first layer is there are no runtime, you know, performance considerations because it's entirely compile time. It compiles down to pointers. Like it's just, an, like, uses LLVM like C. It's just, there's no, there's literally no, no, no like runtime implications. That's like Rust's whole thing. Like their, their secondary thing is like zero cost abstractions. That's the bar checker is one of those. Now, if you go a layer deeper, what the borrow checker does do is force you to write your code in a certain way. So you have to, mm -hmm. and actually I, I would argue it forces you to write your code in a good way. It's right, you have to write your code in kind of a C-like way where you're passing data and transforming data. It's very hard, almost impossible in some, some cases to make like graphs, like big, like Java style webs of objects. That's like, it's incredibly difficult in Rust. And so you could argue that for certain problems that like, well, if your problem is very suited to a graph, then Rust forcing you to do it this other way might have some performance problems. But I would say that as a good first rule, like, yeah, absolutely. It's not all of this just gets stripped away. And what you see is essentially like C code, I think. Gotcha. So, so if I am thinking about the single ownership thing, it's not like, it's not like there's like a bit that gets passed around to figure out who owns something. No, it's more the sense that, uh, I mean, like, like it's, it's, there's single ownership. There is only one place that the data resides in other languages too. Like, like the object is on the stack. Like that is where the value is or gotcha. the object is on the heap. But in, in something like C++, yeah, it's, it's I, ha you know, I haven't thought that much about how single ownership sort of, maybe Evan, you have some thoughts. 
Yeah, um, you could think of it about it like a bit travels along with the data, but at compile time. So the compiler will, you know, track: is this a owning pointer or is this a non-owning pointer? Is this every, you know, is this yeah. an owning value? And you can't really have a non-owning value, but I'd say it travels with, with it at compile time. I feel like it's simpler than that, though. Like I don't think that, like that, that almost makes it out to be more than it is. Like it to me, it's not different than having a value on the stack in C, and then I decide to reference it. Um, like you don't, you don't really, you don't, you don't think much about like, I mean, it, it does force you to think about ownership. Maybe I've just used Rust too much and now it's just like very intuitive to me because I feel like I think about ownership everywhere else in my other languages. But yeah, it, it feels like it, simpler than that, but mm, I don't know. <laughs> I can't put my finger so on it. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it, it was funny. I was like laughing in my head at first when you were, you were saying like, how important is single ownership to the borrow checker? And I was laughing because in my notes, when I was like studying the borrow checker, the first bullet point in my notes is single ownership. So I was glad to hear that that connection was made and that I wasn't going crazy. No, yeah. I, I also wanted to, I had another thought on in that whole exchange, which is you, you mentioned that it kind of forces you to write your code in a sort of C-like way. And what's interesting is that as I've improved a lot as a programmer, just writing in C, I've learned certain rules for myself that I, like I've developed these rules over time. Of course, misusing any tool is always possible, like necessarily that's true. And what I've found is that I've iterated on what things I consider to be acceptable while programming C. So like I'll, I'll write my code oftentimes in like the single static assignment style fashion where it's like, here's a variable. And then I have like maybe a block of code that's going to like do a bunch of allocations and like, uh, I don't know, some complex computation. And then from that point on, that variable is now immutable. Now I, d I don't mutate it. It's like one artifact of computation that I'm keeping around in this code path or something like that. And so I guess when I would turn that into a question, I'm curious, if you were to go and move into like just programming C, like you're, you're experienced Rust programmer and now you're like, I have to go write this huge code base in C and I have to try to make it memory safe and try to achieve the same things that you achieved with Rust. To what degree would the lack of the borrow checker be a problem for you? Like, would you be able to follow the same rules? Because I, I, I hear from a lot of Rust people that they start by fighting it all the time. And they're like, oh, we got the borrow checker or whatever. And then as you get more experienced, you're like, I'd never fight the borrow checker. And I'm like, well, if you never fight the borrow checker, then maybe you could just do that in C as well. <laughs> and, right. you know, that's, I, and I think that's happened to me. I, I, I don't program Rust, but I, I feel like the, the rules have developed for me in a similar way. I mean, maybe it was a more painful path or, you know, I don't know. But I'm, I just wanted to pose that question to you guys. So, yeah, when you go from Rust to C, you often find yourself programming in a very Rustish way. And that means, like, like, for example, using a lot of the common patterns that we run into in Rust. For example, if you've ever had a function in C that just does some calculations and returns some new data, like a peer function in other languages, Rust loves that. And it works with that pattern perfectly. And so in Rust, you actually find yourself using that pattern a lot. And then you bring that to C. Some patterns Rust doesn't like, for example, uh, intrusive data structures like intrusive linked lists, the borrow checker just cannot reason about them. And even in Rust, we, we often have to kind of do some architectural acrobatics to work around those restrictions. Sometimes those acrobatics are actually a good thing. They will force your program's architecture into something that has clear data flow, clear ownership rules. Sometimes it'll make your program slower. For example, Tiger Beetle database, which is written in Zig, used intrusive data structures for some pretty critical parts of it. And that's something they couldn't do in Rust. So their program would be slower if they tried to obey the borrow checker in that particular situation. Does that kind of answer the question? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious about, I mean, we could rat hole on this. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't stick on it for too long, but 
because I use intrusive structures in C. Like, can, can we actually? I, it occurs to me that the the term intrusive structure might not mean something to everybody listening. Right. So can we define that real quick? So um, I guess I'll just describe what I do in C because like terminology is whatever. Like everyone disagrees on it all the time. What I mean when I say intrusive structure is like I have a struct and it has a pointer to a struct of the same type. Then through that, you can form like a singly linked list. You could also have two pointers and form a doubly linked list. You could form a tree, you could form a graph. You could form things in a number of ways like that. But it's like the the links that you would... If you imagine like a linked list as like a generic data structure, you might have like a node and it contains some, it's somehow like the node points to another node. You would imagine that the node would be implemented in this intrusive fashion, but then it would like redirect to the actual data that you're storing in the list or whatever. In C, what I find myself doing all the time is that in the data that I'm using myself, I will have a link inside of it. And that's what I mean. So I don't know if I, I, I assume that was the same thing, but. Yeah. Is that, is that what intrusive data structure means to you, Evan? Yeah, yeah. And I want to clarify one other thing. Rust can handle intrusive data structures when they are tree-shaped, like a strict hierarchy. So for example, you could represent a, a binary tree uh, with the borrow checker, but you couldn't represent something like a doubly linked list, kind of like you were talking about just now. So, so can I get a specific reason on why? Like, what what is would a singly linked list be like a special case of a tree and therefore work? And, yes. Okay, so I think I have an idea why, but could you explain why why it works out that way? Yeah, this this is something I struggled with to figure out like why the borrow checker doesn't like certain things. And like if you ask, you know, if you ask on the Rust Discord, they will tell you, you know, you can either have one mutable reference to something or multiple shared references. But I think a better explanation to me is that a doubly linked list, if you look at any particular node, it will have two references pointing to each other. And therefore, both of those have to be this kind of shared immutable reference that uh, that the borrow checker, that's the only way the borrow checker knows how to have multiple references to something is if they are a, a shared mutable reference. If you have a singly linked list, then any particular node has only one reference to it, which means it can be a mutable reference, a mutable reference. Now, of course, this is problematic for doubly linked lists because if every reference to every node is immutable, then that means you can never take anything out of the doubly linked list. You can never put anything into the doubly linked list. Mm. And it basically makes the entire data structure useless as a doubly linked list. So, so I couldn't remove a node because I couldn't fix up the, the nodes on either side afterwards. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can reach the node through these immutable references, but you can't modify anything if you only have an immutable reference to it. So you can't take anything out and or rearrange anything. There's a lot of weird libraries that have popped up in Rust that allow these sorts of things, kind of. Like you can do doubly linked lists as long as you sort of treat the whole list as a single unit, kind of because then you can take a reference to it. You either take a reference to the whole thing or take just a shared reference to it. But when you start to think about, oh, I want a, just a pointer to one of the nodes, then that's that's when it starts to be a problem. Yeah, that goes uh, yeah. to a, a higher point too about Rust and the borrow checker. The borrow checker is restrictive, right? In, in a good and a bad way. One of the good ways, one of the best things that has come out of Rust and the borrow checker is that it has inspired a lot of really crazy memory management techniques like for example what one of the things uh you're referring to is uh they call it ghost cell yeah that's um, what i was thinking of yeah 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 <laughs> ghost wild. cell is, is is really cool because it means that you can have mutable aliasing you can have multiple mutable references to the same thing and be able to, to manipulate them freely there is of course there's always a downside to all of these approaches though that work around the borrow checker with ghost cell i believe you 
can't free, like you can't release memory back to the OS. Does that, is that true? My, my understanding of a ghost cell is that it's innovative, but only solving a problem that Rust itself creates. <laughs> like in the sense <laughs> yeah. that it's, it's like a really, really clever way to sort of wiggle out of the lifetime problem that you get yeah. with, with these things. <laughs> but like what I was saying was you could have like a like a, a ghost, like a token that would basically sort of a, ze- a size zero token. So it's like, a, it's a type in the type system that is like fan- the phantom type, but uh, so it doesn't compile into anything, but it's tracked in the co- compile time. And you can use that to sort of like, you can use that as a ticket to kind of access things and to kind of do clever things with that. Is that what mm-hmm. you remember? I don't remember exactly, but. Yeah, yeah, that's roughly, yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> There's a higher point here, which is that getting around the Barra Checker has become kind of a national sport <laughs> of, <laughs> of the Rust language in a really great yeah. way. Like that's yeah. like they discovered something called generational indices, which is a way to reuse you know slots of an array in a really intelligent way, in a way that you can know when a slot has been reused, know when a slot has been uh, released back to the array, so to speak. So you mm-hmm. know if you have an array of spaceships and you destroy a spaceship, you can tell it's been destroyed, and that is one of my favorite things that has come out of Rust because it's inspired other languages. It was interesting. This is another spot where like my techniques for programming in C seem to mirror some of the, not all, but some of the techniques that happen in Rust. Because I, I like one of the things that I've been doing at least for like a, f- a few years at this point is um, without the pressure of the borrow checker, I, I don't know if they're literally the same thing, but I use generational handles like all the time. And mostly because I was thinking about letting data gracefully fail without having to go and update the data, right? So if you have, if you just pair a pointer with a generational index, and then on every alloc or every free, you increment the slots index, then you have a way to check if you're still referring to the same thing that you were talking about when you initially got the handle. And so like I was doing that in C for a while. It wasn't my idea. I don't, I don't, I don't remember where it came from. So I can't be like, Proof Rust doesn't help you invent generational indices or something, but just another interesting point of like the techniques that I've converged to, that I've learned from others and really good programmers that I've like watched, they seem to like mirror some of the things that people like about Rust. And I that was interesting to me. Just one thing that I was thinking about. Yeah, I've actually done a lot of like historical like diving and research to figure out where did generational indices come from and the earliest reference i could find was some sort of paper from like 13 15 something like crazy that many years ago saying that it appeared in windows xp i don't think that's the first time they appeared but like it's has been yeah. it's been all over the place in game engines too uh yeah, yeah but it's something that people realized hey wait a minute we could use generational indices to get around the borrow checker and they work really well together i see but it occurs to me once again that maybe a generational index is a useful enough concept to define clearly. So does someone want to like do the walkthrough on how that works? Sure, yeah. A generational index is when, like for example, let's say you have an array of spaceships, my favorite example. You got 10 of them and then one explodes, right? So now you have nine of them. So that 10th element in the array, it still has a spaceship in it. Like it's not like you shrunk the array, it still has a spaceship, but conceptually it's destroyed. Now this can be a problem if, you know, another spaceship was kind of referring to that index, like had that index stored as its, say, target spaceship or something and accidentally accesses it. So we needed something to kind of represent, is this spaceship still alive? Of course, you can have a Boolean in every spaceship that would work. That can cause problems uh, for if you reuse the slot, if you reuse the 10th slot for a different spaceship, 
you know, that new spaceship there thinks it's alive. And if, you know, the previous space or if a different spaceship was referring to it, it also thinks it's alive, but it's a different spaceship in that 10th element. So instead of a Boolean, we can have an integer, which kind of represents the, uh, the incarnation number, the generation number, like I am the nth spaceship to inhabit this slot in the array. And this is nice because then if a different spaceship was targeting spaceship, I'm gonna say 10th element first inhabitant, <laughs> first generation, it can check that integer and see, hey, the current inhabitant of element 10 says he is the second inhabitant, not the first inhabitant that I was expecting. And so then you can do things like you can cancel the, the spaceship's targeting of that because it's now a different spaceship in that slot, you know? That does make sense. I, I Hopefully that is clear to the audience. I'll uh, let anyone who wants to follow up on that do so in a second. But it occurs to me while I was listening to you that one thing we miss out in games are the delightful bugs you get from that exact situation where you're pointing at the wrong entity without knowing it. I, it uh, the one... The one that I adore is in Mario 64, where you can end up getting Mario to hold any entity because you just get the game engine to think he's holding something, point at an entity slot, and then swap out which entity is allocated there. And Mario never gets a chance to realize the slot is empty. And so he can carry around anything if you can trick the engine into doing it. So, you know, maybe maybe games are a place where memory safety should should be disallowed simply for the delightful bugs on occasion. But <laughs> interesting I, that, that I agree with. <laughs> that is not actually a memory safety problem. Anything I just said, and this is something that that that's important to keep in mind when using something okay. like the borrow checker. That you know we can we sometimes work around the borrow checker by putting things borrow checker by putting things in an array. But we're not exactly safe. We're memory safe. You know, if we expect to access a spaceship, we'll get a spaceship, but we'll get the wrong spaceship. And that can sometimes cause problems. And that's why people love these extra approaches like generational indices, even for borrow checking. Of course, the downside is that there's a performance hit. And I think you find that that's pretty common. Like in Rust, the borrow checker itself has no performance cost, but the patterns it often influences and sometimes forces you into will often have a performance cost. And I think that's a, a fascinating language design angle to, to look at. Right, but only specifically when you're going to make the choice to like use an arena or something like that. But I don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's correct to say that the borrow checker by default would allow you to access an old spaceship or something like that. When you're using the borrow checker, like for example, if you're doing this in C and you have a fixed array, a global fixed array of like 2,000 spaceships. If, right, if you're getting around the borrow checker by using an array and in, in, in just a, a flat array of, of yeah, values. Which, yeah, which, which we is common, often do. Which we often yeah. do because the borrow checker is a pain in the butt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it also occurs to me, like Ryan was saying, I think a minute ago, that he came to this somehow as a C programmer. So even if the borrow checker inspired some people to find it, it sounds like Ryan was saying that the performance hit was one he was taking even without needing to get around the borrow checker, which I find interesting because in that sense, okay. it sort of sounds like it, it's not really a performance hit in the sense that if it's the correct solution, even in a language that doesn't restrict your memory management, then it's also the correct solution and one that does restrict your memory management somehow. Yeah, I mean, it, it does incur a cost to, you know, obviously check the generation index and compare them every time. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, it would be more costly to have some kind of tracking data structure where you're managing, like, instead, it's instead it's actually much, it's, it's, there's much less computation to do in some cases where you can let data gracefully go stale and know that it'll be corrected for, instead of having to like, oh, like this spaceship has a reference to this other spaceship and this spaceship has now changed. So we have to fought, like find all the back references and like trace through the graph kind of thing. And it's like, it seemed, it seemed like a, a way to avoid more compute, uh, even though it did have a cost when compared to like 
like just a pointer dereference or something like that. I, I think it is very interesting that like I understand that the the idea is that there's zero cost abstractions in the whole thing, but I my my mental model has always been a little bit different in that I I think what tends to be some of the fastest stuff is actually moving away from the models that a lot of the techniques employed by something like Rust and that the borrow checker were designed around were kind of built for. And so I think mm. the things that tend to seem to speed things up in my head are like doing very large amounts of work in bulk. And it seems like building a programming model or building a language with like certain compile time guarantees about like correctly, um, cr correctly mallocking and freeing uh, without double freeing and without like returning something where the, where the memory goes out of scope. So you have a dangling pointer or something. It's like a, a memory model built around or a language model built around solving that class of problems. It does like, I think you're right that it will end up being as fast as the equivalent C code doing the same thing. But I think the difference is that, uh, you know, one of, one of my progressions as a programmer has been learning that the original goal of trying to have like a million, like this forest of mallocs and freeze all pointing at each other or whatever was actually the wrong thing to do in the first place. And I think that's one, um, that, I guess that's one point of, I don't know if it's even disagreement. I might just not know enough about uh, everyone's perspective, but yeah, I don't know. I wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, I think I think that's an accurate statement in the sense that there's it's the way I think about it is that there's kind of layers of performance. There's like you can go from like Java to native code. Like like you have an a jitted or an interpreted language, like you know, now now you're in native code land with like C and Rust and mm -hmm. Go, even though Go's got a garbage collector, but and like once you're in native code land, like I think all like most of these languages. Okay, I mean, let's drop out Go, but <laughs> you know, Rust, <laughs> Rust, C, C plus plus. They all have the potential to be as fast as one of the others. Like if you look at the benchmark games and things like that, like they they all clearly could can be made to be as fast as others. So they're in like the same weight class. And then to me, there's like an extra layer there. Like once you're in that native weight class of okay, if you wanted to be like ultra fast like the fastest now you're considering you know getting all your cache lines straight memory access patterns like just you know removing all of the, like the, the you know all of the branches you don't need and that kind of stuff sometimes i think it's harder to do that in rust yeah like i think i and i agree like I definitely agree with that like if you really need that performance then like just working with something closer to the metal is just gonna be easier because because you might like at some point you're just like well you're almost writing assembly like to me like c is kind of like writing assembly but with like some extra features. Um, and so if you're at that level, then Rust provides less of a benefit. There was an interesting article recently by, uh, I think his username is Matt Clad, who is, I think he's the one, he's basically uh, behind a lot of, a lot of Rust projects, but also like the, all the IDE tooling for like, like JetBrains and stuff. But he wrote an article recently on Rust hard mode is what it was called. And it was basically writing Rust where I don't, like everything is allocated ahead of time. And seeing what that feels like, I, I read the article and I was like, oh, that looks like it feels awful. But yeah, so like, you know, I, I think that can be a very tricky trade-off. The question is like, when, when do you need that ultimate performance and when is just native level performance inadequate? Uh, that particular article uh, highlighted something that I've been thinking about for a while. And that's that if you program like that in C or Zig or any of these you know, C replacement languages, you actually don't 
you actually get a lot stronger safety guarantees even without a borrow checker. For example, if you have you know a global array for spaceships, a global array for missiles, a global array for, for bases, you wouldn't have as many memory safety problems. There's no malloc and free, so you wouldn't have use after free. You wouldn't have uh, you know double free because there's no malloc at all. You might have logic bug equivalents of those. Like for example, can't get around releasing a spaceship two times and confusing your system, but they won't be memory safety problems. And of course, this is only about bugs with malloc and free. You can still have objects on the stack, which you can mishandle and cause memory unsafety. Yeah, one of the one of the really interesting things about that article that Matt Clav wrote was that it used custom memory allocators and it kind of avoided using malloc and free entirely, which is actually a pattern that a lot of you know C replacement languages have used, like C and Zig and all those, to achieve memory safety. Not complete memory safety, but a lot of memory safety. A lot of embedded programs, they have to avoid malloc and free. They they cannot use those because they don't want to run out of memory. And they end up having things like global arrays of, uh, I'm just going to use spaceships as another uh, example here, a global array of spaceships, global array of bases, and so on. And they end up in a pattern that looked a lot like what he had in that article. So that's kind of an example of a custom memory allocator. I would call that a pool allocator. I think that's the right term. Another allocator I think he mentioned was using an arena allocator, which was, it's basically where you you kind of malloc from it without using malloc. You kind of allocate from it. Like let's say you want to allocate a temporary spaceship from it. You pull that memory and then you can never use that memory again in that arena. What happens is you kind of increment the pointer. Uh, let's say a spaceship is 32 bytes. That pointer now points 32 bytes past where it was. And then you want to allocate a missile. Okay, you now increment that pointer by 24 bytes. And so you keep on pulling from this arena and you don't free it from the arena until the very end of all of your temporary calculations when you destroy the entire arena all at once. And this is extremely fast. This is one of the fastest ways that you can get memory for your temporary calculations. In fact, this is what garbage collection does under the hood a lot. And this is why sometimes garbage collection can even be faster than the equivalent uh, C code. And so it's interesting, if you kind of take these two custom memory allocators together, the, you know, the pool allocator, which is like you know a global array that you can keep on reusing slots inside, and a bunch of temporary arenas for temporary calculations, you can actually get a lot of memory safety, even in a language like C. It's not perfect, but it gets you a lot of the way there. And there's, in fact, a few extra rules that you can kind of apply on top of that to achieve complete memory safety. Things like if you ever use a union, like in C, if you only ever treat those as values and copy them around and never have a pointer inside it, then that's another way to get even closer to memory safety. And so that article was pretty cool because it highlighted how we can have a few very basic, simple rules to get closer and closer and closer to memory safety, even without a borrow checker. His article didn't highlight that it was without a borrow checker, but the rules that he ended up with were ones that you could really easily do manually. And I would love to see a language that kind of enforced those very simple rules. It wouldn't be anything like Veil, but I would love mm. to see someone make that language. I think like the thing that is tricky about a language like that, like and doing everything up front, is that you do get ultimate performance, but it only, in my opinion, kind of works in a certain domain. I think it's, if you think about like gameplay code, which is like the part of the game that is implementing all of the mechanics uh, rather than the engine, which is, you know, doing rendering and stuff like that. But the actual gameplay code tends to be very spaghetti-like, whether you like it or not. Oftentimes that's just because the game itself is very spaghetti-like. You've, de you've designed a like kind of chaotic system. Oftentimes it's very hard to squeeze that into something where there is upfront allocation because you might not even know all of the possible 
types of objects that are in the game until the game boots or something like that, which it's not true of every game. Like, I mean, you know, games before like 2005, 2010, like all used upfront memory allocation just as a rule because the consoles were so constrained. But I do think that if we're talking, you know, talking general programming languages, I feel like one of the reasons I like Rust a lot is because it does allow you to sort of deal with these hairier domains and get memory safety. Yeah, that's not, you know, that's not a disagreement, actually, I don't think. It's just like a question of what purpose is the tool suited for, I guess. I want to try to build out some of the things. When when Edwin was talking a minute ago, he mentioned pool allocators and arena allocators. And before we move on, I want to make sure we've discussed what those are and how they work at a, at a high level. So yeah, we want to do pool allocator first. Like, well, how is how's pool allocator implemented? So for example, if you know that your entire program will only ever use a maximum of 2,048 spaceships, and sometimes you can ensure that you know manually uh, via checks, know that you will never use more than that. You can allocate a global array of 2,048. It doesn't have to be global. It can just be scoped to main or some other central place. And then every time you need a new spaceship, you just use another element in that array. And anytime you destroy the spaceship, you kind of release that element. And you can keep track of which elements have been released and are therefore available for reuse with some other data structure, uh, such as a free list, which is a list that points at the slots that are available for reuse. Or you can have a Boolean in every slot. Yeah, that's a pool allocator. Does that make sense and sound right to everyone else? Yeah, Evan's doing a great job. Cool. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just making sure we have agreement. I, I, don't, I don't really disagree either. I'm just, uh, yeah, some, sometimes out. I see these terms thrown around and sort of used over top of each other, like arena versus like bump allocator versus pool. Like, yeah, sometimes okay. I kind of see them defining the same thing. And I, and I don't want to spin out and, 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 and touch literally all of them. I, I don't think bump allocator is one I've heard before. What does arena allocator mean? Does someone want to define that for me? So... Uh, I mean, bump allocator is one of the terms that it pretty much goes by. There's also linear allocator. And more or less, all of this is, is that you have pre, like, arena allocator, the simplest version of an arena allocator is that you've pre-reserved some block of memory, and you have a cursor into that. Whenever you allocate, you, you're pushing some memory onto the arena, so you take the pointer that's indexed by, sort of by the cursor, and the cursor starts at zero. So it's like the first byte in the giant block that you've organized for whatever purposes, and uh, if you're allocating 32 bytes, you push, you, you take that pointer, increment 32 bytes, and then return the pointer. And next time you visit the arena, you'll start at the 32nd byte. And then if you allocate 10 bytes or something, then you bump it forward 10 bytes and take the pointer. And then as I describe that, everyone will know that I'm just describing the equivalent of the stack in C. So the C stack allocation mechanism is conceptually the same thing as an arena. Now, I would also like to flesh out that definition more because uh, I use arenas all the time in C and I don't think you have to pre-allocate everything all at once for a number of reasons. So you do not need to like say there, there's like a hard upper bound on an arena because you can, you can implement chaining. So if you have like a small block, let's say like you have a block of 16 megabytes or something and then you, you get to the end of that and you're like, oh, I'm all out of arena space, what do I do? Well, then you just call down to the operating system grab another block and begin allocating out of that one. And then when you pop from the arena, you don't have to clear everything out of the arena as well, just like the stack. You can also just pop bytes off and you can move to the previous block. There's also with modern uh, like CPU memory management units, all the memory instructions are going to be dealing with virtual addresses, not physical addresses. So what you can do is reserve like a gigantic block of virtual address space and say like, oh, this arena, I am defining a fixed upper bound, but the fixed upper bound happens to be like, 
64 gigabytes or something. And I'm not going to commit all of that memory all at once, right? I can only, I've just reserved the address space and I've said to the operating system, whenever you allocate more pages inside of the address space, they can't be inside of this region. And then when you're pushing stuff onto the arena, if you need new physical pages, that's when you go down to the operating system and you say, now I would like a physical page for this stuff that I'm allocating or physical pages for this stuff that I'm allocating. Hopefully that covers the arena pretty well. I, I would also like to say like, I don't, I do not consider arenas only for temporary allocation. And I, I don't see them as, it's not true that you can never reuse a slot out of an arena. So an arena can actually implement a pool. So a pool allocator, if you allocate it, if you push a node onto the arena and the node has a next pointer onto it, what you can do is like implement a free list on the arena. So as you push nodes onto the arena, maybe take one out of the middle, push that onto the free list. Now you have a free list along with the arena. And then anytime you're allocating a new node, what you first do is check the free list. And if the free list is empty, then you push a new one onto the arena. So that way you can actually implement a growable pool as well. So it actually doesn't even need to be fixed. Uh, so that's what I would say for arenas. Um, I could keep going, but I'll, I'll, I'll table the rest for now. Um, sure. Yeah. We could probably keep fleshing up, but I want to see, does everyone else uh, follow all that, all those ideas so far? I had two thoughts on that. One is that the virtual memory is like, that's a sleeping giant. Like it's, it's awesome. Like it's a very cool technique. Like if you haven't ever read up on how virtual memory works and how you can leverage it in your programs, it's very cool because the, the, the operating system itself, like when you ask for a bunch of memory in a big array, it's not actually giving you a linear chunk of memory. It's giving you pages. It basically pulls random pages essentially off the hardware memory and like lines them up for you and pretends that they're all in a big line. And you can leverage that sort of like OS ability to rearrange the pages of memory at will to just do really things you wouldn't expect to be able to do. You can make things like copy on write file systems or memory uh, areas and things like that. Yeah, it's super powerful. There was a really good blog post by the Our Machinery uh, game engine that was talking about using virtual memory for allocating. Um, it's, yeah, it's very cool. I had another thought. Something with memory allocations like that I, and, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think like in terms of performance characteristics, but like in my head, like once you start talking about, you know, managing your own free lists and doing stuff like that or like reusing spaces, at some point you're sort of implementing your own malloc. Like, I mean, you'll probably, it'll probably be a little more efficient because yeah, you, you, you know exactly what you need. But part of me is like, well, maybe I could just go use a, a, a well-implemented malloc that is already doing all this stuff. And also I'll get things like compaction, you know, and stuff like that, which you wouldn't get if you're trying to do it yourself. That's, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, malloc is a little too general purpose sometimes. Like malloc is, if you're only going to use one allocation strategy for your entire application, which many of us do because that's the easiest, then malloc is a great choice. And it is, you know, it's been iterated on for 30, 40, 50 years, and it's extremely fast for that particular constraint of I only want to use one allocator for my entire program. But, you know, arena allocators are much faster, but you can only use them in specific cases. So if you know you're doing some temporary calculation, uh, or you know that it's not so temporary, but you'll never free anything in it anyway, arena will be better. Um, well, I get the sense that if you can use it as a bump allocator, but I guess my point was more that once you start trying to layer on features like keeping track of free spaces and other things that does yeah. it actually like is it actually going to be better than like j like like so you can use all sorts of custom mallocs there's like 
me malloc and je malloc and and part of me feels like well maybe there's just one of those that you could probably leverage and might even be faster than what you can write i think if you take it to the extreme then yeah what you said is is definitely true uh those allocators support a lot of different um yeah things like for example je malloc supports multi-threading right yeah that's a lot fair. of You're right. that's, don't yeah, even use yeah. multi-threading and you know a lot of these allocators like je malloc and anything implementing malloc and free really doesn't happen to know the size of the thing it's freeing and i heard that that's something like 20 30 percent of its overhead is just to determine what size it is so often you just make custom allocators that that you do feed the size to and they're yeah, no that faster. makes sense that that completely that, that makes a ton of sense and i'm very interested in some of the newer languages where we're writing custom allocators in the language itself so that now it can actually observe the size of the the structs it's that it's acting on yeah, that's one of the things I'm kind of excited about for languages like Vale and Cone mm. and even Zig and Odin are heading this direction. Yeah. yeah, the ability to more easily use different allocation strategies. Like, you know, we would have things like pool allocators built in, arena allocators built in. One of the things that I'm really excited about is that languages are kind of moving in a direction where you can, you, you leave it up to the user to know what situations to use which allocators and kind of give them a set of allocators to work with. And you can kind of see that languages like Zig and Odin and Vale are kind of like built around this idea because in Zig standard library and Odin's context system and, uh, and Vale has something like this under the hood with its regions, you can actually supply to the function which allocator to use for all of its allocations. And that could cut a lot of runtime off your program just by using those things. And each one of them has a particular uh, approach uh, that makes it a lot easier than in languages like, well, in other languages, yeah. So uh, I think you said something there that I think is super interesting, which is in kind of in contradiction with something John had said, which is that John was saying, you know, at some point you can just fall back on malloc if you're doing enough work to reuse things and stuff. And it sort of sounds like you're saying, that a custom allocator can be a lot faster, but if there if malloc has been iterated on for so long that that it's like got it's got all this wisdom in it, why is it that a custom allocator how how could it be possible that a custom allocator yeah. turns out faster? Like shouldn't I need 10 years to catch up? Well I think it's also important to specify what type of allocator you're talking about because yeah, like a custom if you a, a custom allocator like a bump allocator is always going to be faster than malloc because it's just incrementing a number. Um, but I think the, the interesting question is, how can you make a faster general purpose allocator, I think, yeah. is really more the, and, and I liked, honestly, I liked Evan's point about the, the knowing the size, the fact that malloc is sort of built around needing to be like, injected into the program rather than like, like it's coming from the OS usually or libc, I think. Is it coming from libc? I think it is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, like, and Unix, that's confusing because libc is kind of the OS, but it's malloc yeah. is libc. Yeah. But because it can't know quite as much about the program as a custom allocator can, then you're sort of limited. Yeah, yeah. malloc and free, they prioritize uh, simplicity, you could say, uh, and they've got very solid, stable, nice, easy to use APIs. But if you can, you know, supply the underlying system with more information, such as the size of the thing you're freeing, or the information that, hey, you're only going to be running on a single thread, or information like, hey, pull from this, you know, region of memory. With that extra bit of information, you can make an allocator that's uh, that's a lot faster in those specific situations where you have the information. But I don't think anyone will be able to make a general purpose allocator that's faster than malloc and free, not with the yeah. same API at least. 
so yeah, I wanted to hop in here and just say like, just talk about the idea of, well, if you're going to be implementing these more complicated allocators, why not just fall back to malloc? And I think the reason for me at least, because I, I, I've got, I've got a few thoughts that have been building up over the past like, few <laughs> right. exchanges, but, um, yeah. but the reason why for me that I would, like I never call malloc in my C programs. And the reason why is because I virtually never need it. Like virtually always I can simplify down to an arena case or something mm. that composes with an arena. And that leads me into my second point, which is that these newer languages like Odin, I think Zig are, they, they have this concept of like, you pick which type of allocator to use. Like it's an arena or it's a pool or it's something else. And I think that the model that's been most helpful for me inside of C is actually not that at all. It's actually that you have an arena, which is like the ground basis for allocation, which is the, it's like that it corresponds with a lifetime. You push onto it and then you can pop off of it and that's it. Yeah. But like I said earlier, you can also implement a pool on top of an arena. So it's not picking a, a pool versus an arena. It's actually choosing both if they compose together. And I think the same thing is true with heaps. The most fun allocator that I made that composed with an arena was Atlas allocator. So it's like a texture Atlas allocator. I wasn't even allocating like CPU memory. I was allocating like spaces out of a virtual pixel space, right? It was a two-dimensional Atlas allocator. And that was also composing with an arena. You can do the same thing with heaps and everything. And I think that's one major point of contention that I have with all these newer languages is that writing code for an arena, if you can do it, is always going to be simpler than writing it for a general purpose allocator. And with these new languages, what they say is that the user can supply the allocator. But what that means is that the implementation of all of the code that's doing allocation must necessarily work with the highest generic, like the most generic form of allocator. But that ditches all of the benefit that you get from simplifying down to the arena case. And that's been like, that's one thing, that, that's a major problem I have with these new languages. Cause I don't, I don't think it's a problem of picking which allocator you use. I think it's a problem of composing on top of previous layers. And what that actually allows you to do as well is that when you have like a simple helper function like split string, like split a, splitting a string, finding splitter characters and generating like a string list so that you can treat them in a more structured way. So you have one string, break it up by spaces or whatever. That can, that can be written to an arena allocator. And if you compose all the way up the chain, you can still call that function at any layer, regardless of what other complicated allocators you're using, because now you're hooking into a function that's com that, that composes with all of the allocators you're using. So if you let's take it from the strict C approach and say you're in a function where all you've been passed is a heap, but all of your string utilities are written with arenas, well, then you can't pass the heap to those like functions anymore because it's like, well, now this is a different type of an arena that I'm using. But what I always do in what I found to be way more effective than the sort of picking an allocator model is composing with an allocator model. So when you're doing heap style allocation, you're passed both like the heap data as well as the arena. And so whenever you do need to push some more stuff onto the arena, it's always available to you as the lowest form of allocator. And that, that that's like... It, it, just to make sure I'm understanding clearly what you're saying, you're saying that you don't just want to have a custom allocator, but you actually want just a different custom allocator to be the base. So it's like, it's not that having a base kind of allocation is wrong. It's that malloc and free is the wrong base. Is that, is my hearing you correctly when you say that? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I, I I think that malloc and free lock you into the most generic form of allocator, which is that say you're generating a string list or something or a string array or something. In order to properly reuse that memory layer and make it available for subsequent allocations, you have to go through and be like, oh well, 
it's a list of or it's an array of strings and each like slot in the table is also like it's kind of like a two-dimensional array thing so i have to like loop through free all those and then i can free the base pointer it's like it goes through all this nonsense whereas in arena you like push onto it and then you're done and like i was saying you can implement a heap on top of an arena and you can implement all these more complicated allocators when you do need them but i find in 95% of the code I write, I'm either using an arena or a pool and that's it. And that, and, and a pool is just an arena and a free list and that's it. And, and like a single free list for a single size. Yeah. So you mean I, like, uh, as in like a statically known size, cause it's a pool. So right. we know how big each node in the pool is. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a pool implemented on top of an arena can grow with the arena as well, just like a heap could. So you don't actually have to reserve like a fixed table and have a free list through it or something like that. Like you would with like a fixed size pool. Um, because you can always fall back and pushing more onto the arena. The, the biggest thing for me is is ergonomics, I think, is the trick. And and like when we talk about the new languages that like allow you to specify allocators, what I'm missing yet is like a, a good story on the ergonomics of like feeding all that through. And I haven't yet seen a language that I like that has a good form of that. But I mean, I hope that one comes along for sure. Because yeah, I agree. Uh, I should mention that uh, I believe all three... Well, yeah, Odin lets you pass in an allocator just as a regular parameter. Uh, Zig also lets you pass in an allocator right. as a regular parameter. And I, I think it can even be a comp time parameter, but I'm not, like, don't quote so, me. So, I would, so like, my, my point being that I think that's, like, a terrible ergonomic, like, annoyance. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a trade-off. Like, I don't want to, like, it's, it's kind of like feeding context objects down through functions. It's just, it's, like, exactly. mindless boilerplate. for Because half the time, it's the same allocator. You're going to yeah. use everything. But, but there is something to be said for like for both approaches here, like what Ryan, I think is talking about is you can, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but are you saying you can write code better if you know the specific allocator you're working with? Uh, yes, 100%. Yeah. So uh, the, the reason I'm actually okay with passing down allocators explicitly, I think the context system in Odin is like, like mm. I, I always want to parameterize by an arena and I'll explain why in a second. But uh, yeah, so I think that like, if you're implementing a library and you're working with arena allocators, all of your implementations are going to, going to be simpler compared to if you're expecting to write code for any possible generic allocator. So the, the problem with the traditional uh, abstract allocators is that they abstract over something like malloc and they can also abstract over an arena. And what that means is that they have to be, though that abstract interface has to be sufficiently generic to account for both the arena and malloc and free, which means you have to call free as the user of this abstract interface. Otherwise, oh, you're, you're limiting yourself to a subset of the possible implementations, I, and then it gets fuzzy, and it's like... Right, because one of the benefits strong, of... Yeah. One, well, one of the benefits of working with arenas is that you don't have to call free. It like just frees yes. you up from having to worry about it. But you're right, yeah, when, you, when you're feeding down these allocators, it's like you don't know which one it is, and now you, you're back in the same position you were of having to be really careful and make sure you right. call free. So I think, yeah. I think that was... Uh, clear to me. I just want to double check in with Evan and also clarify for the audience because it's kind of an abstract thought. But Evan, did you follow that train of thought there? Yeah, yeah. Um, like the, the basic trade-off that we're facing here is that you can either write extremely performant and simple code that is, you know, coding against a uh, a specific allocator. Like if you know you're coding against an arena allocator, you can leave out the free calls. If you know you're coding against a like an arbitrary allocator you have to remember to call free you have to remember right. to not allocate like you, you can allocate a lot more but there is something to be said for things like odin's implicit context system in that well hold on before we talk about odin's implicit context system <laughs> i just want to finish clarifying for the audience what i think well because there's like several layers of things going on here and we're talking about abstraction so it's like a doubly abstract concept 
But yeah. what, if I understand the whole thing, Ryan is saying something like, if you're writing a library and you want the user to be able to plug in their own memory management, because sometimes it's annoying when the when you are trying to do something that's a little bit performance critical and the library has just built in a call to malloc and you're just like, well, I just can't make this work because I can't, that's not fast enough for me. I need to use something better. And then you can plug in an arena because whenever the malloc gets called, you, you put it on the arena. And when free gets called, you do nothing. But if I use that as my abstraction, my library code now has to include a bunch of work figuring out how and when to free things. Whereas if my library started with arena, and this is what I am hearing Ryan say, and I, it's that now the library isn't responsible for the freeing and the library is forcing itself to write its code around like that constraint so that it, right. instead of the constraint of figure out when to free, which is performance time stuff you have to do, it's figure out how to make yourself work with an arena, which is only allocating. And then somehow Ryan is claiming that that makes it easier, which I think is an interesting perspective that's different. Pretty much every library abstracts memory management has malloc and free. Yep. Which is like a, a, a different. Uh, this is a very different mode that you're proposing. Yeah. So to wrap up, this is this was the point that I was getting to, and I think it ties into that as well. And the reason why I'm claiming that it's so much easier. So have you guys heard about the like the Raymond Chen null garbage collector post at all? I it was a, like I think I've read he that referenced. One. Okay, he, he referenced something else within it. So I don't know if this is the source, but it's a very good quote. I'm sure you guys have heard it before, but let me let me try to read it. So it's from an email from uh, a guy named Kent Mitchell. And he said, I was once working with a customer who was producing onboard software for a missile. And my analysis of the code, I pointed out <laughs> that they had a number of problems with storage leaks. Imagine my surprise when the customer's chief software engineer said, of course it leaks. He went on to point out that they had calculated the amount of memory the application would leak in the total possible flight time for the missile and then doubled that number. They added this much additional memory to the hardware to support the leaks. And I love so it. I think perfection. Yeah. It was Ship it. pretty 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 amazing. And the thing that's so like I think it's actually it's funny and it's entertaining, but I think it actually gets to a really important point about arenas, which is that you're working with like an operating system, right? You kind of do have a null garbage collector because the process is going to terminate. The operating system knows which pages are allocated to you and how, so it will do all the freeing. Like the, the operating system cleans up all of the memory that's been allocated out to your process. So if you have a leak, it's like, okay, once the program's over, it's fine. Which means also in small utility programs, don't bother freeing is my opinion. But mm -hmm. moving on from that, like- That's, so that's, like, that's like a spicy topic right there that we can- Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. null garbage collectors are basically like, you are allocating and pushing stuff out in, into the memory world and you're like forgetting about it. And the difference between like the operating systems, null garbage collector and an arena is that an arena gives you a handle to any number of null garbage collectors that you would like to choose from. And that's why I like to actually explicitly parameterize by arenas because now I can pick, for example, oh, my game level arena will get reset before a new level loads. So if I would like to allocate something that has to persist for the, the entire duration of the level, that's like a scope I can open up. And I know that it's going to be garbage collected, quote unquote, by this null garbage collector, which is this particular arena corresponding with this particular lifetime in my program. I can also have a permanent one that never gets freed. Like, that's fine. And that allows that, obviously, permanent allocations to compose with all my arena functions. But I can have a permanent arena, a level arena, a frame arena. Yeah. Um, I can even have scratch arenas on on like a thread local scratch arena that I want to push onto and then pop all, everything off once I'm done. Like I can do all that stuff. And it's like writing garbage collected C at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's a little bit worse because you have to specify the arena handle, but it's very close. And 
um, gives you a very good understanding of what's happening, unlike with a garbage collector, for example. So in some ways it might be a benefit, but um, I think that's why I say it's so much more convenient to write with an arena. But yeah, so I thought that was a good segue, but that's that's my final that, point. I got a lot of thoughts out there. So. I a question I, that, on that. I, okay, I have a response to that. I'll look at Evan's question and then John, if your response isn't handled yet, we'll do that too. Yeah, so I got a question for there. Speak about arenas as if they can be used pretty much for anything, but in practice, I've found them to be much more special purpose. Like, yeah, you can use that. Like, like I said, you can use them for temporary allocations. I've used that a lot. Uh, you can also use them for non-temporary allocations that you just know you'll never free. Like, for example, if you're writing a compiler, then you can just use never free. You know, use a null allocator to just allocate your your AST nodes because you're probably never going to get rid of those unless you're writing a language server or some crazy thing like that, right? <laughs> but the point is, like, there there are those cases, but. Aside from those two, I kind of have a hard time seeing when you would use uh, an arena allocator. And for the rest of the things, which in my experience is, is most cases, you would need to use something like a pool or, you know, malloc and free kind of thing where you do need to specifically insert those free calls or rely on single ownership to do it for you. So I think I hear like two different ideas, which is Brian saying he can use an arena for everything. Evan saying he doesn't think so. So this is a really interesting, like we just have a, a contradiction to work out. Does is there something you want to say about that, John? I, I was going to say so, sort of something similar, which is yeah. not quite the same as Evan, but like I think the t to me what it gets to the heart of is I think a lot about the the lifetime structures of your program. Like what is the like, I, I want to use the word ontology, which is that's like the, <laughs> how are things defined? How are, like, how do you talk about the lifetimes in your program? And like programs have very different lifetimes, like a single command line tool, it might spin up a bunch of stuff and then spin it all down. Or you might have something as like chaotic as, I don't know, like I was trying to think of what's the most chaotic thing I can think of. There's a couple of examples I would throw out there, which is something like an open world game where there's stuff loading in and out. And, you know, maybe it's the lifetimes can be tied to the tiles, but maybe you make a game that doesn't have tiles, you know, like, why not? You can do that. So like, where like lifetimes are just popping in and out all the time and you, there's no clear thing to, to like, tie them to, or maybe like a, like a web server that's like running millions of similar but entirely heterogeneous tasks all at one time. And so you don't really actually want to have an arena for all of them because that would be like really expensive. Like imagine like an async task runner that you want them to be very, very lightweight, but like, so you'd like to be able to allocate some memory, but like, you know, where they all have totally different lifetimes. There's also stuff like, you know, small talk interpreters or like actor based um, programming languages. Anyway, I, I would offer those all as like, Situations where it does seem very hard to me to at least use an arena model, um, but that yeah. So, what do you think about that, Ryan? Uh, maybe, maybe, what do you think? So, um, I, one point that that reminded me of is one other example of like uh, an arena lifetime that uh, that I had written down in my notes here was like a per request arena for a web server. So, if a server is like spawning up a new request, it's like, oh, like I need an arena for this. Maybe, maybe you can only handle like so many requests at once or something. So, you have a pool of arenas or something like that. I mean, it gets very yeah, right. It's like the well, and my sorry, and my point on that was like maybe like if you're talking about an async task runner, like you might not have the space to allocate even like a page of memory per task. You might want to keep it like just concrete, like ideally you'd like to only allocate how much memory you need. Maybe you only need like 15 bytes or whatever it is. Right. Um, which maybe I, I could be put on the stack, but like, that's like talking about like very like memory constrained situations, but where the tasks are very heterogeneous. 
Yeah, I, I think I think an arena can be implemented. Uh, like I was saying before with the virtual allocation stuff, like you don't have to necessarily occupy. I mean, you do, that does limit you to a page at most. But I mean, if it's any smaller than a page, then I don't know why you wouldn't use the stack. But because um, that's, that's already allocated for each thread, right? But I think when it comes well, to- Well, it might be that the stack might disappear. Sorry, this is getting in the weeds. Because like <laughs> no, if you're yeah. thinking about an async task runner, like the stack might disappear because you go to sleep. Like if, if it's a- uh, like a like a coroutine or something, right? Where you only have stacks while you're running, and then you want to save a little bit of memory off to the side. But right, right, right. But okay. but but these are all very specific situations. To be fair, like I I think yeah. in the general case of per request arena might make sense, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I and I think you can also implement an arena on a fixed size buffer without doing any of the page stuff. Like you can also have like oh two fifty six bytes is my arena or whatever. Like you don't have to necessarily mm. do the, the giant true. arena method. Right. Um, when it comes to like more specific, like for example, let's let's go back to like game entities or spaceships or anything like that. Um, you know, that's an example of like these overlapping lifetimes, right? So you have like these, oh, you need a free call. Like you actually have to call, you have to signify to the allocator that like this spaceship is now not reserved and it needs to be available for more allocations in the future. And like I was saying before, like that's that's just a composition with an arena. That's a free list and on top of an arena. So you you are allocating with like a more sophisticated allocator because you have a you have a free list but you still use the arena as like the source for all the memory you get. And, and the function for allocating out of a pool allocator from like that composes with an arena is very simple. First, you like grab the top of the free list, uh, which each node in this would have like a next pointer. You grab the top of the free list. If it's null, then you need to push a new spaceship or entity onto the arena. And if it's not null, then the free list was not empty. And so you like pop one off of the free list or the yeah, free list. And then you move to the next pointer for the free list and then you return. And that's the whole allocation. So it's still lightning fast because uh, at, at most you're you're going to like fall, go down to the, to the arena allocator and then it doesn't have memory. So it has to ask the operating system or something, or maybe it's just fixed size and you just fail because it's like you're in an embedded space or you're on a game console where you only have fixed memory or something like that. But I mean, it's it's very fast in that case. And it's also obviously lightning fast in the free list case because you're just grabbing the top of the free list and moving on to the next uh, to the next pointer. Now that works with fixed size allocations, but I thought hopefully that was like useful enough to express how you can do a pool allocator on top of an arena. And similarly, I mean, heap allocators also work the same way ultimately. Like you can implement them on top of an arena. You don't have to obviously, like maybe it's more work than it's worth. I've implemented allocators that do not work on top of an arena and and what you lose is composability, right? You can't pass that allocator into something that you need that, to a utility function that is written for an arena or something. But that's a good example of why I always try to boil it down to an arena plus some extra stuff so I can always take the arena and also use it with like all of the other code paths that have been written for arenas. But yeah, you can totally implement pools. You can implement entity allocators. You can implement variably lifetime things without having an arena for each one very easily. Uh, and it, in fact, that's like, that, I would say that's like 60% case. Like you do need pools a lot. You do need, you sometimes do need uh, free lists or uh, you do need to free, free things that you've allocated. And also like, it's also worth noting like how many things do you have? And if you have like less than, I don't know, less than a thousand entities or something like that, it's not the end of the world to just have an arena per entity either. Like that's also, that's also an approach you can take and you can make the arenas a lot thinner. And that's why I say you can use it for anything. It's not like strictly only arenas. Like it's not that I'm like never freeing out of the middle or something. I am just remembering which ones are, are available. So, so it is like my own allocator on top of it, but. So your opinion is total like that, you, that 
all programs should be written with arenas. Like that's your that's your position. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, which I'm not. I'm not necessarily <laughs> like saying that's a silly position. That's just an interesting position that I've. Not, yeah, yeah. I I, I've I, not tried personally to to do implement that. I think it's the kind of thing where it's like once you have started using arenas, you start recognizing all over the place situations where they work incredibly well. Like, uh, like for example, someone even took this to the extreme uh, in a language, I want to say eight years ago, a guy named Elucent native language called Basil. And he basically made it so every single stack frame has its own arena. Hmm. And you just allocate like crazy from it. Whenever you return some data from a function, it'll copy from that child function arena into the parent function hmm. arena. Interesting. And this was crazy because it was a completely memory safe way of of doing things. There was no borrow checker. There was no uh, garbage collection reference counting, anything like that. So you can use it for a lot of things. Of course, the, the downside is memory usage, right? If you're yeah. always allocating and never freeing, you use a lot of memory. But there are a surprising amount of times when you can use a lot more memory compared to other situations. Temporary calculations is one of them. I like your example of using a, an arena per entity. If a lot of entities have very few components on them, it can yeah, be like I, that. I think that would be the opposite of the ECS dream where yeah, the yeah. components <laughs> are organized together. Yeah. It, yeah. Would, it would be more EC yeah. and kind of like something Unity yeah. has uh, at that point. Oh, but yeah, like it's dig. It's, it's surprising. <laughs> like, I don't know, I would say 50% of all dynamic allocation could use arenas, but I'm just pulling that out of the air. I'm not, so yeah, I'm not sure it, I would, I'm not sure that I would agree. Like, I, I think, I don't know, it, it might be because like I deal with like just a ton of messy gameplay code, but like <laughs> trying to unravel arenas in those situations is challenging. Well, not to say that you couldn't, but like, well, I don't so, think I'd, I'd benefit from doing that. Like, the, well, okay, there's another, there's another thing to trade. I'd on. love to, I'd love to cut in here. So, cause it sounds like there's just like, from what I'm hearing, and I'll just summarize what I'm hearing from y'all, and then we have to like figure out how to solve this. And we're, this might be the last thing we can really dig into, is somehow you're not thinking the same thing. Because Ryan clearly thinks that you can do everything with an arena, and Evan clearly thinks you can't, because he's saying 50%, and that's not 100%. So like, what is that 50% that we're thinking something totally different? How can we figure out where we're missing each other's idea here? It could be a definition thing, like Ryan is describing um, a really cool system where you can build a pool on top of an uh, on top of a what I call an arena. Ryan, are you saying that we can use that kind of system, you know, everywhere? Because I would agree that you can use that overall system anywhere. I just wouldn't right, agree right. that you can use a bump allocator for everything. Well, yeah, it's like it's it's English is a very lossy communication channel for this problem. Like, I wish I could like just show you a code snippet, but um, I, I think we're I think what you said like aligns with my thinking, which is that um, so if you implement a pool allocator on top of an arena, you're right that like the entity alloc and entity free calls are not going to be parameterized necessarily. I mean, you could pass the arena, but you would also have to pass the free list, and so like. That's kind of the point. Like they they can't type check only given an arena because they do this extra bit of work, which is like pushing onto the free list um, if you're freeing or taking off the free list when they allocate. So it's not just an arena allocator at all um, when you have like entity alloc, entity free. Um, but the difference is that inside of entity alloc, you're also given this extra bit of granularity, which is the arena. Um, that you wouldn't have gotten if you were only allocating out of a pool allocator. So you have like, now you're inside of your entity alloc function and you like done the allocate, you've pulled off the free list, like done all that stuff. And you're like, I need to push on, um, I don't know, like I need to 
maybe you wouldn't do this because you know variable size names or whatever but i need to push a string onto the arena that's like the name of this entity now and now that's now that's i i can i can do that because i have an arena which is the handle it's a handle to the lifetime on which i'm allocating these entities from and i can still do that knowing that all of it's going to be cleaned up like say it's the level arena and the level arena gets cleared before every level is loaded in your game then like the entity alloc and entity free stuff will pull off the free list it'll push onto the arena if necessary um, and then when you free you just push onto the free list right that's it um, i don't agree that there's more memory usage um, i wanted to mention that mm -hmm. but that little sliver of code the entity alloc and entity free are using a pool allocator they're not like they're not just using a bump allocator for everything. They are, they are using a slightly more complicated allocator on top of Arena. But the difference is that they're composing with the Arena. So any other adjacent code paths to those two functions that need to use the same lifetime for their various allocation concerns now can use the Arena as well for the same sort of like, I'm pushing memory onto this that I know will get cleaned up when the level is unloaded. So let me just grab that Arena right there. And then I'm done. So I I, th I think that what we you just mentioned of like you use the whole system to allocate the entities that's true, and that that's exactly how I write it. So it's not like my entity alloc takes an arena, it takes something, it takes both an arena and a free list either implicitly or explicitly or whatever. So 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 what I'm really curious about now is Evan, you just heard what Ryan had to say. Does that do, are you are would you still say that there's like fifty percent of things? That you don't see how you're going to use an arena like that. The arena just won't make sense in 50% of cases you care about. I guess I have a clarifying question. Are you saying that this one function can be used for either a case where you're using a bump allocator or a case where you're using a pool allocator? You can use this one function in both situations. Uh, which function are you referring to? Um, I don't know. The one that's calling entity malloc and entity free. Or okay, entity alloc. Um, that is. I'm not saying it could be implemented with either or, um, because the nature of the entity alloc and free API is like requires kind of a pool allocator, right? So you can't pass it an arena or a pool, you have to pass it an arena and a, and like a free list, right? Which implements a pool. And I should be careful with my language because I don't, I don't mean implements in the sense that it's an abstract interface. I mean like the free list is all you need to implement a pool with an arena. So I'm saying like entity alloc, maybe it takes like a, a struct called game state and game state has an arena and a free list head. An entity alloc takes a game state. An entity free also takes a game state because it has to update the free list, right? That's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, hopefully that helped. I, ha I have a counter example also. I'm curious. Perfect, okay. that'd be great. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I am yet convinced that ev like if you're saying everything- this, just, I'm gonna just pause right here and be like, this is super awesome that we found, like I, for a while there we were agreeing too much. So we've found something <laughs> where we don't all think the pretty much same thing. Well, and, and, I, and I think I get, yeah. yeah. I think, I, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. You, I'm I, worried that like, I'm worried that we accidentally kind of completely agree, all of us. And we're really- I think, I think I, I'll, I'll take the devil's advocate approach. At least, at least this, the, to the, to the like the, total position of I can always use arenas seems it, to be fair yeah. it's hard to have a total position about anything and so we're going to be picking apart hairs but so like for <laughs> instance like how would you approach uh like designing a program that let's say it, it accepts millions of requests and all of them need to support user input with arbitrarily length strings so the problem with arbitrary length strings being that you can't Put them in an arena because the arena might not be big enough. You can't use chaining because you need to keep it a you need a contiguous amount of memory to fit that string. And let's say these strings are generated 
arbitrarily, right? Like maybe it's some sort of, you know, the user asks GPT-3 to return something arbitrary length <laughs> and you need to stick it somewhere. Like that's yeah. a tough thing to put in an arena because you could do something that's like, oh, if the arena is not big enough, I'll just, you know, copy everything out of the arena to a new arena or something or make, make a new arena this time to fit it. But then you're just mallocking, really. Yeah, yeah. Let me see if I understand. So it's like, let's say it's like a server or something and it's handling requests and you can be receiving potentially like 10 million requests per second or something like that. Something high. Yeah, we care about something crazy, right? Each request is taking in an input string, which can be of arbitrary length. Now, it can't be infinite, obviously, because nothing is infinite, but it can be like, I don't know, a gigabyte of text or something. And not necessarily taking an input, but maybe it's generating it. So you have to like the the server that like the request responder is responsible for finding somewhere to put this generated string of, of arbitrary length. Like let's say yeah, let's say it's it's a it's a website and I punch in a number and I'm like I want a string of this length filled with gibberish. Right. Give it to me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh let me start by saying, like, do you agree that if it was one request per second instead, you could have uh like there's one thread that's handling the request or something and has an input arena, or well, let me explain like the my pitch for the one request per second case, which is that each thread is like doing a request. And it has an input arena and an output arena. And the input arena is like a terabyte of virtual address space reservation, but it only has like a page allocated at once or something like that. The outputs, same deal. Like the outputs, or it starts with a page allocated or it starts with zero pages allocated, and then you push onto it whatever you need to push for the request. And so like, if someone's like, I want more than a terabyte of text, at that point you're like, okay, well, we can't handle that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think I think maybe their router would give out first or something <laughs> or something like that. But so you so, just you basically upfront allocate enough memory to fit one string of arbitrary length. Right. And and, and keep in mind yeah, yeah. And keep in mind like it's a virtual allocation. So it's sure. just the address space. Yes, yeah, yeah. That works for the one request per second case. And I guess like are you asking if you bump up the number of requests, you run out of address space fairly quickly, right? You only have right, 256 yeah. terabytes yeah. with 48 bits of address space. Yeah. So what exactly are you gonna do? And and and, and like the, the worst case is like, well, 10 million or like you know, a million of those users need strings of length like 300. And then it's mm-hmm. just the like last like five hundred thousand that need that's are evil users and they request the strings that are you know, right. one yeah. terabyte or whatever is super long. Or, yeah. You know. We'd have to like pull out a calculator, but I think like <laughs> you don't, well, I mean, first of all, one terabyte's pretty, pretty nuts, but also. So yeah. Let's know, say, let's like, say the, it's like up to a gig maybe, but it's still going to quickly exhaust gig. if you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to get to 10 million requests, but I guess like what I was, yeah. what I was thinking is that, well, first of all, there's also a question of like server architecture could have different processes with different address spaces. Like, you kind of have, if you can spawn multiple processes, you might be in the realm of being able to spawn as many address spaces as you need to solve this problem. Just to step in here, yeah, I, th- I don't think what's relevant to the question, if I'm understanding correctly, is the fact that physical memory will also give out at some point. Like the right. fact that we can request a gigabyte doesn't mean that Ryan is now responsible for solving right. the fact that but, physical memory will run out of space. But but to that point, right. yeah, it does. The memory does matter because if you because you could just like virtual allocate. A, like a bunch of space for each request, but but then your virtual allocations will run out of eventually, and that is that, sort of tied to memory. But yeah, yeah, like I mean, so um, yeah, the, uh, you could spawn more processes and get more address space, but like throwing that out, and let's say you have only one server process or yeah. something, and each one gets a thread or something like that, you do have only forty-eight bits of address space, which means that you get two hundred and fifty-six terabytes 
and of of address space. So at that point, what I would say is you can either handle 10 million requests simultaneously. Like for me, this is how I would approach it. This may not be the correct approach. I'm just saying like, here's my thoughts on that and how when you bump up into limits like this, it's like, yes, like you can use an arena, but maybe it's not optimal. Like, I don't know. But mm-hmm. the way that I would approach that problem is saying, I have this much address space. I can afford, I care about supporting strings up to this length. And maybe I, maybe I, they're all the requests are prefixed with the length. So I can even like organize them a little bit more carefully, right? I'm like, okay, these, these, this thread pool over here is doing small requests. It only gets one gigabyte. And then like these, uh, this thread pool over here gets way more. Like I could be smart about how I organize my address space allocation other than giving them all an equal size. If it's like prefixed with the length or something like that. I mean, getting into details that we don't know given this example, but so, I mean, in that case, it's like, you have 256 terabytes. How many requests can you handle at once? If it's less than 10,000, then you have to like bucket it out and say like, okay, I'm handling the first, mm-hmm. you know, not 10 million, but maybe I'm handling the first 100,000 or something. And I'll go sequentially. And if I need to be able to handle more, then like I said, you can start chopping up the address space in a little bit smarter way. You have a thread pool for small requests, thread pool for large requests. You can start studying the data more, seeing mm-hmm. what actually comes in. But I think like, I think in terms of the actual, whether the allocator works is like very clear to me. If you have two arenas, input and output, that's like, I think that just works. If you can organize it such that each request thread or each request response thread or whatever gets two arenas, then it's a very clean data in, data out pipeline. It's just like, okay, inputs pushed onto the input arena and I push all the allocations I need onto the output arena and that's it. Um, Yeah, and I think I agree that like programming style wise, like you're talking about the code, then yeah, I, I totally get how an arena would work and would honestly be very simple. Like, mm-hmm. to, to me, it's a question of it's like, well, but now using these arenas is creating these knock-on effects that are limiting our performance or actually potentially would be slower than just using malloc, which is interesting, I think, to me. Like because because like the the easy way to do it is just use malloc and then like for all the users that only allocate 50 bytes, it only allocates 50 bytes, and then you only ha- get that hit on those couple of users that are doing the big ones. You don't have to artificially like rate limit or like kind of group things together. But like, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the distinction there because I I agree that like as a programmer, the arena makes a ton of sense in the end. There is the question of like what actual use case is this representing? (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, no, for sure. I think I'd be surprised if malloc was going to be less performant specifically because you don't need to free anything. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, thinking we do, we're we're running out of time, so I do want to move on to one last round mm-hmm. of topics before we are out. These will be it'll be a quick one, but I, as a final comment on that that whole um, um, I don't know what you call hypothetical thing. As I was listening to you, it occurred to me that we were basically talking about an a server that implements malloc was the spec of the problem. Like a number <laughs> comes in, and you have to set aside that much space. <laughs> Yeah, and but, so but like that's in the, that case, a, a hand-tuned malloc allocation allocator it might actually be all you need. And what what are we doing with arenas? It would really really matter <laughs> if like after the allocation happened, what kind of work is being done that that like the allocation style matters again. But if the, if the only thing we expect is a server that implements malloc for its users, then there's something like I, we need a better example. To, I, I like that summary of the yeah. I like that summary of the problem, and it's like to me the question is it's like well, well then what real world problems actually yeah. boil down to something like that? And 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 in the space that I work in and have worked in, a lot of problems feel like mm. they're unpredictable, like entirely user defined, dynamic, like size requirements. 
So uh, I, I think to close out the topic of arenas, and it's really interesting, and I'm, it doesn't seem entirely resolved, but basically we have this idea that Ryan is, maybe he doesn't 100% think this, but he's got a, a case that he wants to make that it's like arenas can cover a lot of use cases, a lot more than people think, perhaps verging on 100%. And even in the downsides, the, the workarounds are better than workarounds and other kinds of solution or other kinds of solutions to our memory problems. Uh, and then the other side is like, no, there are these cases where it's like, clearly the lifetime patterns are too chaotic and the arena just isn't a good fit. And I think it sounds to me like it's, we still have like non-mutual understanding happening. It's like, there's got to be either a use case that that is real, that clarifies arenas don't work, or a technique that clarifies arenas do work in that use case, right? And one of us, or maybe both of us, haven't understood um what what the other side is thinking in that situation. So I think since we don't have time to keep getting into it, that's something to think about. And it segues into the like the last thing I want to talk about, which is of all the things we've talked about, we kind of know like everyone's got some things they're a fan of and some things they aren't a fan of. Try to just think in your head for a moment, what is the thing that you think is like, what is the style that you are sort of most persuaded by or find most appealing right now? Is like, given, you know, maybe your mind has changed since we started or your perspective has problem, but wherever you're at right now, where are you at? And what do you think if someone was going to convince you to change your mind, either to be like more non-safe languages or more safe languages or more arenas or less arenas? What's the topic that you think, here's how someone could change my mind. If I, if I saw this thing, I would start to have to reevaluate my thinking. Because I think it'd be really helpful to hear from everyone what's keeping them from, from like sort of getting more excited about other topics. That way, the people who are excited about it can go help that person get excited. So uh, why don't we do, I'll do this uh, same order we did when we did um, intros. Evan, do you, if you need a minute, go ahead, but I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I, I think, I think if someone, I think I could be convinced on two things. Like I, I've got two, two views here. I, I'm skeptical that the borrow checker is universally useful. And a lot of people do believe that. And I, I can see why they, why they say that, but I'm not entirely convinced and the reason I'm not is because uh, it can't quite handle things like uh, like intrusive data structures like we talked about, like graphs, uh, observers, back references, dependency references, callbacks, delegates, uh, some kinds of RAII. But if someone, you know, if according to the national sport of Rust, if, if we could somehow figure out a way to make those patterns work within the borrow checker, I could be con I could be convinced that it is a much better bet for for going all in on. And then the second one is uh, this this arena style that that Ryan's talking about. It's something I've been exploring with Vale too, because as I'm making the region borrow checker, which is kind of like the borrow checker but lifted one level up to be more usable, so to speak. I've kind of been approaching some of the same conclusions of things that Ryan's been saying, like like the concept of an output arena makes so many things make sense and just fall into place and click. And like that's it can eliminate a lot of copies. It can eliminate a lot of need for more long-lived allocators. And so like my explorations in Vale are kind of going the same way there. And so I think, you know, given like, I, I really want to finish implementing it so that I can, you know, play with it for six months. And then I might actually discover that everything can use a bump allocator, like with careful enough handling, it can be done. Yeah. I would love to be convinced of that. Cause that would be, that'd be a huge bombshell for me personally. Awesome. Great. That was, that was super interesting. That was great that you had one in sort of both directions. I, I appreciate that. Um, John, you had something. Yeah, I'm, I'm like trying to like, it's, it's a tough question because 
I feel like all of these things that I write and the ways I write code are based on the needs of what we need to write. I think oftentimes, like I, and I love getting on, like, <laughs> I love just like thinking, trying to get towards ultimate performance. That's like just an amazing time just thinking about that kind of thing. But also at the end of the day, 90% of the things I write don't need ultimate performance. Writing Rust with, you know, default allocator, plenty fast, runs in less than a second, don't, don't need anything more. And so I think that's that that's the the the, the trick. I, I think if you if you ask me like like to, to use like a clear example, I think. So like I wrote a program in Rust that would skim through all of the mesh files in our project and would identify a certain issue and wrote that in Rust with without even thinking about performance, just just didn't think about it and it was blazing fast. <laughs> just didn't need to worry about it. And like I think the thing that would convince me maybe to use Zig or C was if someone could come up with improved ergonomics for a similar language. I think a lot of the reason I use Rust, and we didn't get to, we need to have a number two discussion for this because like we didn't even get to talk about it too much. But one of the big reasons I use Rust is it's just so, once you do know it, it's so fast to write. Like it's faster than Python for me at this point. Like I use it for all my scripting. Like it's, it's legitimately very quick because just it's just well very well designed. I think the thing that I struggle the most with right now with C and Zig is just it's a little rough around the edges. They don't quite have the ten years of design that goes into that has been iterating on Rust. So I'm excited about Zig because I've read a lot of things, and but I'm not quite I'm not quite there on the ergonomics of actually day to day using it. It's not a great answer, honestly, but like I think no, that's I think the that's biggest a, thing that keeps a, me with something like Rust is just yeah. That. I think that's a great answer. If, if I could summarize, it sounds perfectly reasonable to me, which is that you see a lot of benefits to some of these styles, but the ergonomics are too costly, and ergonomics matter. So you need to see better ergonomics, and that will move you like to to, to explore more. Like what yeah. can I do with this style under better ergonomics? And, yeah, and for, to sure. and to build on the action, and that what that triggered to me is I think the reason I focus so much on ergonomics is. I am not in the business of writing one singular, very fast piece of code. I need to write lots of code that is fast enough for the use case. We only, we, yeah. like the, the Oculus Quest can only render so many frames per second to the screen. If it's any faster, it, that doesn't help me in the least. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's sort of a different philosophy about what I need out of my code, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, Ryan, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree that like compared to Python, like Rust is is so much faster to program in. Um, but you know, programming in in Scala, you know, not in a functional way, but in a more mm-hmm. Java plus plus way, I found that I write just as fast in Scala. And so it makes me wonder: Do you think that Rust's improved development speed is largely attributable to the borrow checker or to the extremely good type system it has? Oh yeah, we should we should definitely talk about this eventually. But yeah, to, to me, that my fundamental philosophy about Rust is that, <laughs> and this is yeah, this is deep. But the the singular point of why it's so well loved and so successful in this space that's hard to be successful in has literally nothing to do with the bar checker. <laughs> it has everything to do with the fact that they made insanely smart API decisions. They've got great type systems. They've got enums and like abstract data types and things like that it's just very sensible like the cross-platform story is absurd like there's no other language in which i can go download a library and i know with 
confidence that it will run on all platforms, even if the user didn't intend it to. Uh, so Ryan, back to the original question, do you have like a, a position on which you think certain things could change your mind that you could tell us about? Yeah, so um, I guess I was going into this before I was like researching and, and before the conversation, I mean, I've always been a little bit, but just inherently biased against Rust. I think partly because I'm contrarian and a lot of people tell me to use it. So my instinct is be like, no. But, um, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not there. I'm, I, I'm an arena extremist, so I'm not going to be convinced on that. Like, obviously I have, to, I have probably the most extreme position on that, that, um, other than like a few other people, <laughs> but, but, um, that I know of. So I, I, you know, I don't think that's going to change for me. What I, what I think has the discussion and like what I read before the discussion, um, has, uh, been pretty interesting for me and like kind of starting to sway me a little bit. It's like, I, I, I think it has to do with like compile time checks more so like there, it's not crazy to me to have the idea of like inside of a scope, there are certain forms of handles. You can take the things and they have rules about they can't cross paths. Like this is an immutable one. And like some of that stuff starts to make more sense to me. We didn't get to one of my, primary concerns with Rust, which is like the complexity of the implementation. I find it very important to be able to implement the compiler that I use or like even conceivably, like even if I'm like, oh, I can't have an amazingly good C compiler in a month, but I could write a functional one that would do somewhat the right thing or whatever. That's pretty important to me. Um, and I, I don't, so I, anyways, I guess to like close out my thoughts, I would say um, I would be much more in favor of more compile time checks if I saw an extremely simple implementation of them on top, like that requires almost no code on top of uh, like sort of like a traditional, you know, structured C style programming kind of thing. If I saw that, and especially one that composes with non-usage of it. So if I could be like, okay, for this function or like all my high level gameplay code, I'm like, turn on the checks and like, don't let me worry about it. But like now I'm in this tight loop and now I have to do all this careful stuff. That's like, if I saw a very simple implementation of that being composed onto like an otherwise C-like systems language, I would be like, oh yeah, that seems pretty good. Now I don't think Rust is that. I would have to see something other than Rust because I think Rust is like, from my conception, they're very much in like the replace C++ domain. And I... I don't even agree with that goal. Uh, C++ is also way too complicated. Like all of it's too bad. So I, I think, but I think there are some useful lessons and some useful things that Rust people have gotten at. And we we touched on a bunch of points of agreement. Like I we similar patterns in our programming styles and everything. And I think I think they're hitting on something and they're right with a bunch of the stuff they're criticizing in the C model, right? Malloc and free forests are a nightmare always. And they, they have security problems and reliability problems and performance problems, it's all bad. So they're right about that. And if they could, I, I feel like if I saw a Rust person be like, here's a packaged up, nice, simple example of this really useful principle from Rust that would just make a C style systems language a hundred times better. And like, I don't know, it could be as simple as like bounds checking. Like I would love bounds checking in C or something somehow. Like, I don't know exactly, but like there's things like that that I'm like, I've, I've softened a little bit on, I would say. Um, I never liked, I, my whole point is like, I don't like C either. Um, and I, but it's just what I choose, but cause it's, I mean, it's familiarity and it's simple enough that I could probably implement it. But anyways, I'll, I'll wrap up there that I guess that, that probably covers my, my positions.
I can offer a note of hope for that entire <laughs> perspective. Um, a lot of languages, a lot of languages are going in those directions. They're taking the lessons from Rust. Like I, I was fascinated to discover uh, a few months ago that if you look at Rust a certain way, it's actually applying the borrow checker to five different aspects of memory safety. And you can actually kind of like take those apart and selectively yeah. apply them to new languages. Uh, a really fascinating example is is Val. Not not Vale, my language, but like Val, the other language, you know, one letter off. Is they they have this uh, mutable value semantics model, which is fancy speak for Rust, but everything is a mutable reference. And you have that and a lot of cloning. And suddenly you have complete memory safety without all of the insane complexity that the borrow checker can have in certain situations. Um, and like you said, the uh, the composability aspect where it's like you can compose something like the borrow checker with non-borrow checked code would be a massive win. A few languages are going that direction too. Veil is one of them. Like the nice thing about the region borrow checker is that you can write 90% of your program without the region borrow checker because Veil doesn't rely on it for memory safety. It relies on generational references for memory safety, but it uses the region borrow checker for optimization and finer you know, uh, allocator control, like with the arenas we're talking about. There's Cone, which is, it's kind of rust, but on top of reference counting and garbage collection when the user wants it. And there, there's there's like five or six more, but everything you just said, the, the languages field is heading in those directions, which is really exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I should add also like as one other point is like, I don't think I would switch languages because I don't find it worth it, but I could have my mind changed there too. If one of these language projects showed the simplification to everything but the language. So like a huge problem inside of C is not the syntax for me. Like I know it's kind of janky and old and stuff. It's not the syntax. Some of the semantics are like complicated and weird, but it's not actually the main problem I have with C. It's like the, everything outside of the C ecosystem, right? It's like these, all of these file formats are complicated. My debug info is busted half the time. Like all of this stuff is falling apart. And if a language was like, We've solved all of this and it's very simple and you can write a debugger in three months and it works and like all of that just clicks together. Then I'll be like, okay, I might switch to that language. But like until, I don't know, I, I, I feel a disconnect to a lot of language developers because it's very much like they're iterating on a part, part of the problem that I don't care as much yeah. about because I, I like to, I, I'm okay programming in C. Like it's, my, my world is not going to change if I move to a new language, but my world totally would change if I had a great, if I had great tools everywhere else, then I'd be very happy. That and then, and then. Yeah, that you to me that's like saying that's exactly the same as my takeaway, which is which is why I use Rust because it's just like the tooling is so good. Uh, first of all, thanks to everyone for coming. I thought this was a lot of fun. I hope everyone listening got some something from this. And as a final thought, I just want everyone who participated to get a chance to plug something uh, that you want people to go check out. So, well, uh, Evan, what, what, where where should people find out more about you and stuff you're doing? Uh, most of my stuff can be found on veil.dev. That's V-A-L-E.dev. Uh, you can follow me on my website at johnaustin.io. Uh, read my blog. I don't know. Keep up on updates on the games we work on. Uh, you can also follow the company at pontoco.com. P-O-N-T-O-C-O.com. Uh, you can find all of my stuff. I've, I've been writing blogs over at rflurry.com. Flurry spelled F-L-E-U-R-Y. And uh, yeah, I wrote a blog post about arenas and why they've like totally changed my C programming experience. So I, people are interested in that, they can go check that out. All right, thanks everybody. And thanks so much to Abner for putting this together.